This is a show for missionary disciples who worship Christ in the Eucharist and serve Him in their neighbor, for whom the words of the Creed reverberate through their daily activity. This is a show for those like you and me who make the conscious choice to follow Christ outside the walls. Well, we're coming up. This is your warning. Uh, and you can't say you didn't know now. We're coming up on the Feast of the Assumption of Mary. It's coming up on August 15th, a couple of days away. You need to go to church that day. So find out when your local liturgy is going to be held uh, and make your way there. Uh, I'm recording this a little bit earlier even than we're hearing it. And I am sitting on the 15th floor of a hotel in Las Vegas, Nevada. First time I've ever been there. And I'm not there for the reason you might think. Uh, I've had the last couple of days in glorious company, uh, spending time with the priests of the eparchy of Phoenix for the Byzantine Catholic Church. Uh, We're here today with Father Daniel Dozier. We've had him on the show before. He's the pastor of St. George's Byzantine Catholic Church in Olympia, Washington. He's an adjunct professor of sacred scripture at Byzantine Catholic Seminary of St. Cyril and Methodius. He's the author of the Catholic Answers volume, 20 Answers, Eastern Catholicism. He's one of the founders and hosts of Becoming Byzantine, which is a kind of an OCIA, RCIA pathway and series for Byzantines. Uh, Even if you're not going on that path, if you want to learn more about Byzantine Catholicism, you can go to becomingbyzantine.net and go through that video series there. Uh, He is also, oh, there's so many things on this bio, the executive chairman of uh, the Eastern Catholic Eparchal Directors of Religious Education under the authority of the Eastern Catholic Associates of the USCCB, District 15 there, I think. That's right, Region 15, yep. And we actually have a a, a new name, so oh. it's it's God With Us Eastern Catholic Formation, because okay. nobody knew what ECED was. Right. So, <laughs> And that, of course, God With Us, you can find out more about that at godwithusonline.org, right? That's right. So we're here today for a couple of reasons. Um I had the pleasure, uh, the the distinct pleasure of spending time with uh, nearly 30 priests of the eparchy, uh, going to matins and vespers and the divine liturgy. And this was my first time going to a divine liturgy, um, which the the simplest way to put it, uh, and this is imprecise and, and my apologies, the simplest way to put it is it's what you would expect from a, a a Eastern Orthodox, a Greek Catholic, uh, sorry, not Catholic, a Greek Orthodox service, the the Divine Liturgy of Saint John Chrysostom, mm-hmm. um, but it is a community that is in communion with the Pope. That's correct. Other than that, you might not be able to tell the difference between one service and the other. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I, I wanted to point out, and we're going to have this larger conversation surrounding the the differences and the similarities between the Feast of the Assumption mm-hmm. and the Feast of the Dormition of mm-hmm. Mary, which are both different ways of looking at the same event. But one of the things that I often see in, in my Latin Catholic um, circles is people who think of Catholicism as a litmus test and a line, and they talk about people being faithful Catholics or real Catholics or or any other number of adjectives along it, with in some ways the mindset that Catholicism looks like believing all the same things mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that I do. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that there's... There's obviously some truth in that because we have to be in communion with one another. Right. 
But I think perhaps we put too much emphasis of our communion together on believing exactly the same thing down to the letter. And the 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 Eastern Catholic Church and its relationship to the, the, the Latin rite of the church, I think, is a beautiful example of how there can be some, some we would consider large differences of opinion, familial disagreements, <laughs> and yet there's still a communion there yep. where I went to the divine liturgy and I was able to receive the blessed sacrament, and it was a, a beautiful and wonderful experience. So, I believe it was uh, Pope St. John Paul II talked about breathing with both lungs, right? the East and the West. Let's start there and talk about your experience of being in communion and part of the Church of Rome while still being uh, also a part of this patrimony of the Eastern Church. Yes, wow. That it was, uh, well, first of all, it was a pleasure to have you there with us. Um, we we always appreciate when our, appreciate when our Western Catholic brothers and sisters come to visit uh, an Eastern Catholic church in part because it really helps to uh, helps to orient us in, in a kind of a literal sense <clears throat> to the fullness of Catholicism, which is obviously more than just, as you said, more than just the West. Uh, it is the West and the East uh, together. And I, and I say the East, it's really the Easts in the, in the plural sense. So uh, when we think about the Eastern Catholic churches, it really helps us to understand that the Catholic church is a church of churches. Mm -hmm. We don't often think of it that way. We think about it more in terms of, uh, as you mentioned, sort of the Western church, which is the largest uh, in the communion of churches that make up the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. But the, but the, uh, the Western Catholic church is, is really uh, one of, of 24 churches that make up that one holy Catholic and apostolic church. 23 churches are Eastern Catholic. Right. And, and yet most people will associate the Catholic church with the West because it is the largest. And, and also because it's, it's preeminent bishop is the Pope of Rome. Let's also uh, maybe point out something different that sure. in, in this way, um, without even, I think, realizing that we're doing it, we mm-hmm. are being influenced as Catholics when we think about the the church as the Latin church. Mm-hmm. We're being influenced by uh, the culture that's around us, specifically the Protestant culture that's around us, mm-hmm. who uh, specifically in the 18, late 1800s, early 1900s, made a big deal about uh, being Romish, mm, right, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. and having you know the, the Eastern Church wasn't even on their radar for the most part, and the things that they wrote, and so they were pushing back against Roman Catholicism, even giving us the title Roman Catholicism, which mm-hmm. the Church does not adopt for herself in any of her documents. Correct. Um, and I think <laughs> back to the times when I was Protestant. I spent a number of my a number of years of my life in in a Wesleyan tradition. Mm-hmm. It, it, somehow, in my mind, Catholics were that that kind of small subset over here in the corner, mm-hmm. and you know the world was Protestant. Of course, everyone knows this, right? And of course, becoming Catholic, I realized the the sheer number discrepancy between mm-hmm. the, the small, even with all of its its variety, the small number of Protestants versus Catholics. But that idea of the Roman Catholic Church, mm-hmm. as we adopt that term for ourselves, we, by taking on their definition, lose sight of the fact that we are not merely a Roman church. Right. Yeah, and and 
you know, I think one of the things that might be helpful too when we when we think about the church as a church of churches is to maybe take a step back and and ask, well, how is that possible? Because I think understanding the origin helps us to clarify what precisely is the role of Rome mm-hmm. and and how does um, does the communion with the Pope help to define you know one of the uh, important pillars of being Catholic, but it doesn't necessarily, uh, define every single aspect of what it means to be Catholic, mm-hmm. and so uh, if, if that's okay, I mean, one one, one 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 way of kind of looking at this. So if we if we go back to the time of Christ, we have to kind of start there, right? So uh, you know, our Lord Jesus Christ in the fullness of time comes to Earth. Uh, he's born of the Virgin Mary, and uh, and and born within this this wonderful tradition of Israel, uh, preparing the way for the for his coming. And he, in his public ministry after his baptism, he calls his disciples, and he puts them through really a, a three year leadership training program yes. for for the apostles. Uh, and so <clears throat> he's going to form them to become really the pillars of a a new Israel of God that he's going to form that has a universal vocation. So Israel in the Old Testament, its vocation was primarily focused on uh, the Jews, those who were physically descended from Abraham uh, through uh, Jacob, Israel. Uh, You had the 12 patriarchs. Well, our Lord Jesus is now establishing a new Israel of God that's going to encompass both Jews and Gentiles who believe in the Messiah. And so he's essentially going to establish one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Every single Catholic church holds to this, mm-hmm. uh, th- th- this belief that Christ came to establish a church on the foundation of the apostles. Now, after his crucifixion, death, resurrection, and ascension into glory, he sends the Holy Spirit. And he sends this power from on high that they might be witnesses to all the nations. And this power from on high uh, is going to uh, empower them to make disciples of all nations, to baptize them in the name of the Trinity, to teach them everything that Jesus had commanded them. And he says, and and lo, I am with you always into the end of the age. So, So our Lord has a plan it's a provisional plan that's going to be consummated at his return. Mm-hmm. But until that return, there's a universal mission. And these apostles are sent out to, to preach, uh, to teach, to sanctify uh, the world through the message and through the celebration of worship uh, and through their apostolic shepherding. So what we see, like, for instance, in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, we see after the coming of the Holy Spirit upon the Virgin Mary and the apostles and the disciples, roughly 100 120 in Jerusalem, thousands are added to their number at that particular moment. And then we hear Luke give witness to what life in the early church was. What was it about? What was about apostolic teaching? It was about apostolic worship with the breaking of the bread and the prayers. And it was about apostolic communion uh, being under the leadership of the apostles and their successors, as we see later in in the bishops, the presbyters, and the deacons. So this really uh, helps to shape our understanding of what the Catholic Church is at its heart. It's one holy Catholic and apostolic church, and it's it's based upon the foundation of the apostles' teaching, their worship, and their uh, leadership. Well, and to the point of this being the the Church of Churches, mm-hmm. those those apostles they don't just skip from mm-hmm. the Book of Acts to. Uh, to oh look we have bishops later right right you, you we know where they went right? right we know that Mark 
went to Egypt. Mm-hmm. We know that Thomas went to India. We we see them going to these uh, to the ends of the earth as Christ commanded them to do. Correct. And and bringing the gospel in, in a way that was incarnational, face to face, but mm-hmm. also uh, incarnated. Yes. Right. They, they are adapting the truths of the gospel to the culture of the place where they are, so that it can be heard and experienced and expressed. And just by virtue of different apostles going to different places, carry mm-hmm. the, the, the gospels don't even agree on all of the details. Mm-hmm. So you send the twelve out to various places taking their experience, Mm -hmm. not a book, not a word, but taking their experience and expressing that experience of liturgy. To me, it's more amazing how close the liturgy is Mm. than it is frustrating that it's different. Right. Because they're going to the ends of the earth and encountering different peoples and incorporating parts of those cultures into those liturgies. Exactly. So, And so when they go out, they actually start at the uh, Jewish communities in the diaspora, right? Or especially mm-hmm. around Asia Minor and beyond. They're going to these communities and they're preaching the gospel. And some of the Jews receive it and, and believe and others do not. There were also in the synagogues... Uh, again, in the diaspora, away from outside of Jerusalem, there were Gentile hearers. Uh, these were Gentiles who wanted to uh, to abide as closely as they could according to the righteousness of the Mosaic law uh, without going so far as to be circumcised for the men. Um, and yet they wanted to live Torah as much as they could, the law of God. But when they heard the gospel, and they embraced the gospel. Not only did they embrace it, but their social network did as well as they started to see these lives transformed by uh, by Christ and by the preaching of the apostles. And so you have these Gentiles who start to enter into the church and are baptized, which St. Paul says uh, to the Colossians that baptism is what fulfills a circumcision. So now we have the circumcision of the heart. Uh, they are now made spiritual children of Abraham. And of course, this becomes a, a very contentious issue, as we know from the book of Acts and uh, chapter, 15. chapter 15, the calling of the Council of Jerusalem. So, so this whole point is, what is the, how is now the church Israel universalized? Mm-hmm. And so as it goes into these cultures and beyond even the synagogue, how is it uh, uh, taking the the cultural and di- linguistic, philosophical, uh, artistic genius of what they're encountering and marrying it to uh, the message of the gospel and the worship? So, so you start to see distinctive ways of expressing this one holy Catholic and apostolic faith mm-hmm. under the governance and shepherding of the apostles and those who are their successors. And so you have unique expressions, for instance, of theology that come up, as you alluded to. You have unique expressions of liturgy, although you have the same seven sacramental mysteries, different ways of celebrating it. You have uh, different forms of spirituality, ways of expressing our relationship with God and deepening our prayer life, and then also different kinds of church law. And all of these emerge out of these huge metropolitan centers that then have daughter churches, and then it just spreads organically from there. I I used to do marriage preparation, and I I talked to young married, uh, engaged couples about um, these unconscious rules that they had that they didn't know they had 
um, but that they were going to experience when their spouse uh, encroached upon those rules, mm-hmm. right? Uh, you're folding the towels wrong. Everyone knows that you fold the towels <laughs> in thirds and in thirds and then and then in half. Well, what, and what about the toilet paper? You the know, toilet, it's, over or under, right? Or under, all of these know, things. Right. And you come in as a Latin Catholic, you come into a, a Byzantine divine liturgy and it's like, you're crossing yourself wrong, right? Mm. <laughs> all of a sudden, I've got to, I've got to switch it around. Um, but it's, you still have the spirituality of crossing yourself far right. more than than is done in the Latin Church. Mm-hmm. Um, you hear people talk about, uh, oh, well, Catholics have too strong of a devotion to Mary. Mary is mentioned over and over as the Theotokos with beautiful harmonies every time she's mentioned in mm-hmm. the Divine Liturgy. There's there is this similar love e- even in its differences. Mm-hmm. Um, and let's get to some of the, those are kind of funny, mm-hmm. um, but sure. pushing even further. Yeah, the Great Schism that occurred in 1054 that yeah. that um, <clears throat> was at least expressed to be about the filioque, right? As to whether or not. In the creed, we say that um, I believe in the Holy Spirit uh, who proceeds from the Father. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, the Pope added, and the Son. Right. And there was that disagreement that that there's lots of explanations around it. People have talked about it for a, a thousand years as to what was behind it. Um, but ultimately, uh, in the Western Church, we say, and the Son. Mm-hmm. Proceeds from the Father and the Son, and with Father and Son is adored and glorified. And there is this expectation i've even heard in the minds of some that if we can ever solve that problem the churches will get back together in communion sure and yet in the divine liturgy in the eastern catholic church mm-hmm. you don't say the filioque correct but you're still in communion even with <clears throat> that kind of a discrepancy in the liturgy so mm-hmm. let's hone in on that moment specifically sure. The, the communion in spite of disagreement. Yeah, and, and it's because it's interesting, right? Because as is coming back to where the churches are expanding. Because and some that's of the, doctrinal. It's not just external. Absolutely, exactly. As, as the churches are expanding, you know, these cultural, linguistic, uh, artistic differences that sort of develop, you know, eventually um, as the churches grow, you, you end up with five major churches, you Rome being the first of the churches, uh, then, you know, followed by Alexandria founded by St. Mark, a disciple of Peter. Mm -hmm. Then you have Antioch where Peter was first Bishop. Uh, then you have, um, well, Constantinople, which was actually named second later, uh, which legend has, it was actually founded by Simon Peter's brother, uh, St. Andrew, the first called, and then Jerusalem where Simon Peter preached. You've got uh, these sort of Petrine uh, seas that together exist in this communion, this beautiful communion, uh, but it, it isn't always peaceful. It right. isn't always peaceful. And, and eventually there is a gradual estrangement that occurs over time, especially because of you know, certain emphases that end up in, in particular expressions of theology, certain pastoral needs that arise at the time. Uh, and that gradual estrangement, you see it kind of coming to a head in 1054. Uh, people call it the Great Schism. It's, it, it, it's not really the moment of the Great Schism, but that's how it's known as. And, but but it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a moment where I think the realization is that the, the, not, not all is well and peaceful in the, in the life of the church all the time. Well, I think it's important to, to point out and to, to acknowledge 
that there's a lot happening in this apart from theology. Right. You also have the adoption of Latin as the primary language of mm-hmm. the Western Church that's right around this time. Right. And now you have this is kind of a Tower of Babel moment where mm-hmm. now we're no longer speaking the same language. Right. The the early church was speaking Greek. Right. Um, and that's that's just a historical fact. All of the original New Testament texts that we have. Uh, were written in Greek with potentially some. There's a couple of fathers who say that Matthew was written first in Aramaic and mm-hmm. then in Greek. But mm-hmm. but regardless, all of the extant texts that we have, the church was Greek, and then somewhere along the lines, as the Roman Empire fell and the mm-hmm. the church filled that vacuum, mm-hmm. Latin was adopted, and so in part of that, there is a a language discrepancy and a distrust of the language difference Correct. that goes into it as much as anything else. And you look at the councils, the ecumenical councils, um, there's in one council, it's, well, there is the one person, right? That you have the, the, the person of Jesus Christ and the hypostatic union, one person, two natures. Mm-hmm. And then <clears throat> at the next council, they're saying, okay, but, what are the wills, mm-hmm. right? There's mm-hmm. two wills and and there's this, if you don't have that kind of philosophical underpinning, like the Latin church did, mm-hmm. um, to be able to parse out those differences, you're like, wait, no, 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 we just discussed this. It's it's one person. Right. right. And so there's these, these things that the Western church sees as very important that we're pushing through and we're defining and we're trying to mm-hmm. wrestle with because of what it says about God and others, but they're doing it from, a Latin mindset, which doesn't match. They're not asking the same questions at that point in time. And that, that also occurred within the East. And mm-hmm. and so what, one of the things that I think it's, it's important to recognize is that um, when it, when it comes to church unity, it, there is a tendency at times to romanticize the East, for instance, that there's just one East. And that's why I mentioned, you know, the, there are Easts, you know, right. and, and not only in Catholic communion, uh, you have, for instance, within, um, within the Orthodox world, you have the Oriental Orthodox, the non-Chalcedonian Orthodox, and the Chalcedonian Orthodox. Uh, and so there are divisions that occurred within uh, the development of the conciliar tradition of the early councils where you know, these these points of debate and discussion, I, I think now as we've become more familiar with, you know, the, the importance of language and theological language and, you know, what was meant, I think we're able to reconcile far more now than we were at the time when there were, you know, a lot of polemical issues that were that were coming up. Uh, we, we come to understand, you know, these were... These were important matters, not just uh, pertaining to theology, as though it's an academic discipline. Mm-hmm. These were matters pertaining to salvation, and they also had uh, imperial implications uh, in terms of the the empire. So the, there was a lot of these different undercurrents going on culturally and politically and socially and theologically, and and so um, you know we look at it now. We read, it's, of course, hindsight maybe twenty twenty, but. Uh, at the time, you know, there's a lot of heated battles, um, you know, really trying to understand the, not only the nature of Christ or the nature of the Holy Spirit or the Holy Trinity. It was how how does all this relate to our salvation? Mm-hmm. And so, uh, and so these were these were seen as as important matters. The the coming back to 1054. What's what's really interesting about 1054, and you mentioned the filioque. 
And certainly that was, uh, that was an undercurrent in, in the issue. Ironically, the greater issues at the time, and you're, you might laugh about this, and it is, it is kind of, we look at it with, what? How is that possible? It had to do with the use of unleavened bread yes. in, for the Eucharist among the Latins. Uh, and the fact that the Greeks uh, and uh, most of the East, not all of the East, uh, the Armenians had adopted also a, a tradition of unleavened bread for the Eucharist, uh, used the artos, used the leavened bread for the, for Holy Communion. This was seen, uh, and and I would say probably exploited is is also a good term to use by a very polemical patriarch of Constantinople. And uh, as a way for him to kind of assert his authority, his power over even Latins living in his jurisdiction. And so he began to impose Byzantine disciplines on Latin churches. Now, we hear a lot in the in the Western world about uh, Latinizations of the East. And that's that's one of the, that's a something that actually did occur where you started to see Western traditions being adopted by Eastern Catholic churches. But that's this is what was happening in the reverse in the jurisdiction of Constantinople. Um, also, another issue, more significant than we would think, had to do with clergy beards. Mm -hmm. uh, yep. And uh, we, again, we think it's kind of funny, but but this was a polemical issue uh, and, and, a, and a point of debate. Why don't the Western clergy, you know, why do they have clean faces? They need beards. And there's a whole biblical tradition of beards. And of course you read the patristic data and it, it, you could land on either side of, of the issue. Um, so, so what seems like really small potatoes to us today in terms of things that might divide? I mean, when you receive communion, past couple of days, you received uh, the, um, the body of Christ as leavened bread. By intinction. By intinction, yes. right. Yeah. So, you know, it, the, these, these were points that, again, that seemed really important. Now, the filioque gradually became a, a much more prominent issue. Uh, actually, it was it, prior to this, it was a prominent issue. But it, so it was in the background. But these other issues, ironically, were, were ones that were being debated more so, uh, unfortunately. So we've got about a minute left yeah. here in this segment. And I, I want to come back to this uh, the, the fact that in the, Byzantine Catholic Church today, mm -hmm. in union with Rome, mm -hmm. that the filioque is omitted from the Correct. Nicene Creed. Correct. And, and I want to point that out specifically <clears throat> and have you comment on it, because so often it's seen as this dogmatic thing that has to, uh, if we could only get over that issue. And of course, there there are so many Eastern rites that have proven right. that we have gotten over that issue, right. that we accept and recognize and embrace communion with one another, despite that seemingly doctrinal difference. Correct. So so what do we do about filioque, right? So um, filioque, this, this dogma uh, regarding the procession of the Holy Spirit from the Father and the Son as defined in the West, uh, the, the Eastern churches, especially the Greek churches, this pertains more to those of the Greek tradition. Uh, there is, for instance, within the Cappadocian Fathers, this notion of the Spirit proceeding from the Father through, through the Son. Yeah. Uh, perfilium. Uh, and, and this is one of the things where, and, and this also, I think, speaks to some of the posture of the Eastern churches regarding 
earlier polemical issues is that we take a more ironic posture around these things. Um, you know, in the Union Abreast, it says, you know, we we argue about these things because we think uh, we're not willing to listen to one another. Yeah. And in fact, we can exist in communion while not incorporating that into the creed. Yeah. We're talking today with Father Daniel Dozier. He's the pastor of St. George Byzantine Catholic Church in Olympia. Find out about the things he's doing now at godwithusonline.org. Come be a part of the ongoing conversation over on social media, facebook.com slash step outside the walls. We're on threads now. That's also at step outside the walls. And don't go anywhere because there is so much more to this conversation right after this break. Welcome back to Outside the Walls, where we explore the implications of our belief on our daily life. I'm your host, T.L. We're talking today with Father Daniel Dozier. He is a Byzantine Catholic priest. He's the pastor of St. George Byzantine Catholic Church in Olympia, Washington. We're sitting here on the 15th floor of a hotel in Las Vegas, where we have just spent uh, a couple of days with the the priests of the Eparchy of Phoenix. And of course, you're going to continue on as you'll have other official meetings and my business here is done. Uh, but it's been such a joy to be here and share this time with you and your brother priests to be a part of your prayers and the matins and the vespers, which were beautiful and and beautiful harmonies. M- many more major keys than I than I expected, <laughs> if I have to, if I if I'm honest. Sure. Um, and just the joy of sharing communion in celebration of the fact that we are in communion with one another as different rites within the Catholic Church. We're coming up on um, a big day, August 15th. August 15th is the feast on my side of the stream uh, of the Assumption of Mary, where Mm -hmm. Mary at the end of her earthly life was assumed body and soul into heaven as a um, as a, a first fruit, as a uh, as a promise for the the bodily resurrection for the rest of us, um, and on your side of the stream, it's mm-hmm. the feast of the Dormition, mm-hmm. which is largely the same thing, but there's a couple of different views because in the Latin Church there is the permission, although I don't know how many people take it, the permission to believe that Mary was assumed without having tasted death. Mm-hmm. Of course, the the Latin Church makes no official statement one way or the other. Mm-hmm. Um, just in her uh, language, uses the term "at the end of her earthly life," mm-hmm. she was assumed. Um, I I know that they're the same feast, and I know that there are some differences, but I don't even know enough to be able to enumerate those. So I'm going to invite you to do that because you have spent a lot of time in meditation and thinking about the Dormition. Well, it it I have to say it is probably my favorite uh, of the Marian feasts. And for for a number of reasons. Uh, first of all, our Byzantine liturgical calendar, you may not be aware, actually begins September 1st. Okay. So our, that's the beginning of our liturgical year. And we have what are called 12 great feasts that, uh, that make up a large portion of that liturgical year with some, you know, pre-festal celebrations and times of preparation, even times of fasting. And then uh, the- um, I'm going to interrupt you there because I've known a few Byzantines and they would would take issue with your phrase, sometimes of fasting. (laughs) 
It, it <laughs> there are four like, fasts. Right. Okay. <laughs> there, but they're significant fasts. Yes. Yes. We, 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 in fact, are in a period of fasting right now, uh, referred to as the Dormition Fast. So we are actually in that time of one of four fasting periods um, in preparation for this great feast of the, of the Dormition. But these, but these 12 great feasts, the first of the, of the 12 great feasts are the, um, or is the Nativity of the Virgin Mary, which we both celebrate on September 8th. The last of these 12 great feasts is the Dormition. So in one sense, the life, the beginning of the life, the birth of the Virgin Mary and her holy death form what you would say would be the bookends of our liturgical year. She becomes the model of discipleship in Christ for us. Holy her beginning, holy her end, holy her entire existence is the phraseology of the fathers. And so the Virgin Mary is really the model, the icon of, of, of a church committed to this life of discipleship in Christ. So Dormition, <clears throat> in many respects, is the consummation of that moment, which you alluded to. It's, it celebrates not only uh, her holy death, but her holy resurrection and her assumption into glory, her translation into glory, to be enthroned and to receive that crown of glory uh, at the right hand of her son, her coronation. So all these mysteries are presented, if you will, in this great feast. Uh, and and it's what awaits all of us. So like a good mother, she goes ahead of us mm -hmm. and prepares the way for us uh, to uh, to be in the kingdom of her son. So if you were to enumerate or to point out a couple of things mm -hmm. that are different between our celebration of the feast mm -hmm. and yours, uh, I'm going to bring up one. It's interesting that our liturgical calendar starts with the Advent waiting for the birth of Christ and ends with the feast of Christ the King, mm -hmm. following <clears throat> that journey of him from his nativity to his glorification at mm -hmm. the right hand of the Father. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Yours follows the first disciple. And mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. so just that point is, is a beautiful difference mm -hmm. um, that the focus is more on Mary as a, an exemplar of faith for us. Yes. Yeah, true truly an icon of the of the Christian mm -hmm. life for us and and a true spiritual mother. So you know, one of the things that um we talk about that the fathers talk about this that there are really three births in uh, in the Christian life. The first birth is the the birth in our mother's womb. The second birth is the birth of holy baptism. The third birth is the birth into eternal life that comes through death. You know, when Christ conquers death by death, which we profess and and announce numerous times in the in the Paschal season, you know, <clears throat> this this moment of Christ conquering death means that death is not anything we need to fear. Mm -hmm. Death becomes, you know, the cross becomes the life-giving cross. And so for the Virgin Mary as our spiritual mother to help lead us into this pathway into glory, she teaches us that death is not something to be feared, but rather uh, to be that moment of birth into eternal life. And I think it's a, it's a very hope-filled feast. Mm -hmm. uh, because it, it it tells us that you know God in His providence uh, desires that all of His children uh, be gathered together with Him and uh, especially with His uh, with the Christ's holy Mother. Of course, with the Paschal mystery, we celebrate the the uh, death suff suffering, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and and so we have this acknowledgement in the Latin Church that uh, that 
death is not a thing to be feared. It's written all throughout the New Testament. Mm -hmm. But when we think of that primary feast and the highest feast of the liturgical year, of course Jesus is going to raise from the dead because he's God. Of course he is. Why wouldn't he? Um, And and to that extent, it's almost as if uh, the the Dormition of Mary, and specifically pushing into that belief that the Latin Church permits but doesn't require, Mm -hmm. that that Mary actually passed away, mm-hmm. it in some ways even more so takes away the fear of death for us. Correct. Because she has died and then been raised body and soul as a promise that that, that thing that we profess, I believe in the resurrection of the body, mm-hmm. it is going to happen because it already has happened. Right. 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 We, we have proof of it and so therefore we have hope of it. Yeah, and this this belief in the Dormition, it's it's important to note. This is this is not anywhere contained in sacred scripture, right. and and the fathers acknowledge this. This this uh, teaching, it was one of those uh, traditions that was sort of handed down orally. This belief uh, that the Virgin Mary did in fact uh, die, uh, and uh, and then. The, the whole process of her resurrection and translation into glory, all these different elements, it um, it gradually consolidated in in a tradition of a of a feast around the six hundreds, around mm-hmm. the seventh century, and then you start to see fathers like Saint John of Damascus uh, develop a whole slew of homilies uh, around this feast, highlighting certain aspects of that apostolic tradition, the traditions and the customs and the beliefs of the churches regarding the Virgin Mary. And he, he talks a lot about the fittingness and that's mm-hmm. a theological concept utilized right. by the fathers frequently, the fittingness of the fact that she would follow her son, mm-hmm. uh, in, into death, uh, that that was part of her more perfect imitation of her son. But there's certain interesting sort of legends and stories that developed around that. So if I might share just a couple of them very quickly, you know, for instance, uh, there was a, a general tradition uh, that uh, that she was praying. You know, she she'd come, she'd lived a long time, of course, and and she was praying th- to her son, asking him to please bring her to be with him. She wanted to be with her son. So this is where that that sort of emerged. She wanted to be with her son. And so uh, as the story goes, at one point when she was praying and the archangel Gabriel appeared to her holding a palm branch from paradise and saying, you know, the, the uh, you know, most holy mother, uh, our Lord has heard your prayer and here is a sign. And she said, she went, she said to the archangel Gabriel, all I wish to have is all my sons, my spiritual sons, the apostles gathered mm-hmm. together with me. And if you look at the icons of Dormition, you'll see oftentimes apostles in what appear to be uh, sort of these strange, almost uh, uh, leaf cupped uh, <laughs> things being carried by the holy angels mm-hmm. uh, to to Jerusalem to be with her uh, in this moment of of her of her falling asleep, and so uh, the story goes: they gather in the upper room. She's praying with the apostles. Simon Peter preaches a homily. She burns some incense and prays some psalms, and then falls asleep uh, quietly in death. And in that very moment, our Lord appears, and this is in what's called a mandorla, which is a an almond-shaped image within an icon. So it means it's being seen through the eyes of faith. The apostles see her in the upper room. And our Lord is holding her soul, her immaculate soul. It appears like a, a, a white um, 
or a baby wrapped in white linen, and uh, he's holding her immaculate soul. So in our our iconic tradition, we often see the Virgin Mary holding the Christ child. Mm -hmm. What this reveals is that even in those moments, he was actually holding her yeah. because he was the one who not only created her, but sanctified her uh, in, in, in the, from the first moment of her existence. Yeah. Um, and so he was the one who held her and sustained her in that moment. And as, as the story goes, uh, all of the apostles were there except Thomas. Ironically, and so when isn't they, it just like Thomas? Thomas, to skip out I tell on you, some important. It thing. was. It had to do with the curry. I think he really liked that <laughs> Indian food. So, so he he was he was delayed. When when they eventually went to bury her in the Garden of Gethsemane, as the tradition goes, Thomas appears three days later and says, "Please, I'd love to venerate the uh, the mother of my Lord one more time." And so they open the tomb, and then there's the smell of fragrant roses, and they look, and there's flowers all over the tomb. Her body is not there, just her holy belt and and um, uh, a covering. And um, in that moment, they are transported into heaven, and they see her being crowned in glory, yeah. body and soul. So, so this is where the tradition, for instance, for us, the custom of blessing roses mm -hmm. on the Feast of Dormition comes from, uh, and that opening of the tomb uh, in that very moment. I want to uh, point to a, a couple of things here. Well, one, you mentioned that it's not in Scripture, mm -hmm. uh, but it doesn't have to be. Right. And there are so many of of the things that we believe that are even dogmatic that are handed on to us by the apostles. Mm -hmm. um, you have we have traditions of the the tomb of Saint Peter and Saint Paul both having worship services there at their at their tombs in the centuries following them. Mm -hmm. um, and so it it's completely <laughs> rational to say that several centuries later, this tradition is finally written down and we have it in writing. No. It's significant that we don't have, because there's relics all over the place floating around. Mm -hmm. right? We have the relics of the saints. Right. We have no first-class relics right. of Mary. It would seem that someone would have, if she was to be found, mm -hmm. would have preserved those and disseminated them. Very and true. so even though we don't have a definitive record of it in scripture, it does mm -hmm. not in any way point to, it, it's an argument from silence, which is right. one that can't be really, it's not a strong argument. Right. But you know, what's interesting, I think, and noteworthy about, noteworthy about that is that we don't have the Ark of the Covenant either. Mm -hmm. And, 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 and uh, typologically, the fathers have always seen in the Virgin Mary uh, the, a type uh, or a yes. fulfillment of the Ark of the Covenant. She is the Ark of the New Covenant. Mm -hmm. And just as the Ark of the Covenant disappeared uh, in salvation history, so we have the Ark of, of the New Covenant where the, the manna of, uh, from heaven, the bread of life, our Lord Jesus Christ, the high priest's rod uh, that miraculously blossomed, uh, the symbol of his high priesthood, and also his, uh, the, the, the tablets of the law, him being the word enfleshed, uh, and uh, and dwelling among us, these the ark that carried those objects now uh, is with the Lord in glory, mm -hmm. uh, and so it is. You know, her her body was truly holy, uh, and and in fact, what's noteworthy too is that the fathers all point to the fact that they witness to the fact her holy death bears witness also to the preservation of her virginity mm -hmm. uh, and her holiness. And so this is a way of kind of preserving that tradition of her, of her being perpetual virgin too. 
tangential but related. Yeah. Uh, in in my conversations this week with you and your brother Pete priests, one of the things that I have noted and I have deeply appreciated is in speaking of death and uh, of talking of brother priests who have gone before you. Mm-hmm. Every time you use the language that's the biblical language, they've fallen asleep. Mm-hmm. And that's one that that we don't use anymore in the West. And I think that we should readopt it because it, it's it's that idea of memento mori. Remember that you will die, but but putting it in its proper perspective. And as we have this this icon for us of the Dormition, yes, that this is temporary. Yes. We're falling asleep, and and giving even it is as it is final. It is final as a beginning and mm-hmm. not as an end. And and this is where this idea of eternal rest, grant eternal rest, mm-hmm. O Lord. You know, it, it, we, we're entering into a new Sabbath with the Lord, a holy rest with him. And and on the day of resurrection, body and soul will be reunited uh, in glory. And so by understanding and praying for those who have that eternal rest, uh, there's even a prayer, you know, grant eternal rest in the bosom of Abraham mm-hmm. and number them among the saints. Uh, this idea is that death is not something to be feared uh, because our Lord has overcome it. Yeah. Uh, and and forgiveness has risen from the grave, yeah. uh, as the homily of St. John Chrysostom says. We've been talking today with Father Daniel Dozier. He is the pastor of St. George Byzantine Catholic Church in Olympia, Washington. He's a priest of the Eparchy of Phoenix. You can find out more about the work he does at godwithusonline.org or at becomingbyzantine.net. You'll find great information in both of those locations. Uh, this is the end of our conversation here on the broadcast, but we're going to have more conversation in the in the Patreon segment. I, I have a couple of, of doozies that I want to bring up. One, I want to talk with you about original sin and Ooh. our doctrine of it and the differences between East and West, sure. and maybe a little <laughs> bit more about the Dormition. Father, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Teal. God bless you. If you enjoyed the conversation today, I encourage you to subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Also, I encourage you and invite you to share this episode with your friends on social media. You can find links to do both over at OutsideTheWalls.com. And as I just mentioned, we did have an extra bit of conversation. We ended up talking for about 34 extra minutes, one of the longest extra segments that we have. And those extra segments are made available to all of those who support the show through Patreon. Our Patreon support community helps keep us on the air. And so we make these extra segments in gratitude for all that they do. Those extra segments become available to the general public after about three months. And you, again, can find those by following the Patreon link over at OutsideTheWalls.com. Now, let's turn our attention to our readings from Scripture and from church history. That's the sound of the Verbum Library launching up. Verbum helps you read Scripture in light of church teaching by putting the magisterium at your fingertips, linking Scripture to the Catechism, to the Fathers and Doctors of the Church, and so much more. You can learn more at Verbum.com. Our reading today from Scripture comes from the first letter of St. Paul to the Corinthians, chapter 15. Brothers and sisters, when that which is mortal clothes itself with immortality, then the word that is written shall come about. Death is swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
That reading again comes from the first letter of St. Paul to the Corinthians, and it's one that is given to us for the readings on the Feast of the Assumption. It's a reminder that for us, death is not the end, that death does not win. It does not have victory or mastery over us, and it does not sting because death is that welcoming into uh, the, the restored relationship and eternal relationship of our souls to the Father. Through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, we have been given the victory, and that victory is uh, the, the realization of our intended vocation, that for which we were made, for relationship with God the Father. And so this is given to us on this day for a couple of reasons. One, again, it's reminding us that death, even as we are remembering the the end of the earthly life of the Blessed Virgin Mary, um, death is something that is not something to be feared or something to be uh, horrified by, but it's something that we look to with hope, knowing that we uh, that that death is the gateway for us to finally enter into that fullness of relationship. Because right now we see things through a veil, but then we shall see face to face. We will know even as we are known. The second thing I want to point out here is just that last line. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's just a reminder that even as we're talking about the assumption of Mary, the dormition of Mary, were doing so because of the work of Jesus Christ. It was he who gave the victory. So Jesus Christ, he ascended into heaven under his own power, but Mary did not ascend. She was assumed. It was through the power of God, through the work of her son, that her assumption and eventually our resurrection will take place. It's through the work of Jesus Christ. Today's reading from Church History comes from selections from a homily on the holy and glorious dormition and transformation of Our Lady, Mary, Mother of God and Ever-Virgin, by St. John Damascene. Today, the treasury of life, the abyss of grace, is wrapped in a death that brings life. Undaunted, she draws near to death, having given birth to death's destroyer. If one may call her departure from the world so full of holiness and life a death at all. For how could she, who brimmed over with true life for all, ever become subject to death's power? Still, she yields to the law established by her own son, and as a daughter of the old Adam, she undergoes the ancestral trial, since even her son, life itself, did not refuse it. But as mother of the living God, it is also right that she should be brought into his presence. For if God was concerned lest the first human being reached out his hand to take from the tree of life and eat and live forever, how can she, who has received that life that knows no beginning or ending, the life free from the boundaries of both birth and death, not live herself for endless ages? For it was fitting that this worthy dwelling place of God, the spring of the water of forgiveness, which no human ever dug, 
the wheat field of the bread of heaven which no human ever plowed, the vine of the grape of immortality which no human ever watered, the ever-blooming, richly fruitful olive tree of the Father's mercy should not be confined within the hallows of earth, but rather as the holy, spotless body which had come from her and which had its concrete existence in God the Word, rose on the third day from the tomb, so indeed it was right that she, his mother, should be taken out of her grave and joined with her son. And just as he had come down to her, so she, his first love, should be taken up to that greater and more perfect tabernacle, to heaven itself. It was fitting that she who gave refuge to God the Word in her womb should dwell in the tent of her own son. And as the Lord said that he must be in his father's house, so it was right that his mother should make her home in her son's palace, in the house of the Lord, the courts of the house of our God. For if the home of all who rejoice is in him, where else should we find the cause of our joy? It was fitting that she who preserved her virginity undamaged by childbirth should have her body preserved from corruption, even in death. It was fitting that she who held the Creator in her lap as a baby should rest in the tabernacle of God. It was fitting that the bride whom the Father took for his own should dwell in the bridal chamber of heaven. It was fitting that she who gazed at her own son die on the cross, and who there received in her heart the sword of pain that she escaped at childbirth, should look on him enthroned with his father. It was fitting that the mother of God should receive the blessings of her son and be reverenced by all creation as mother and servant of God. For a heritage always passes from parents to children, but now, as a wise man has said, the streams of the sacred rivers flow upward, for the Son has subjected all creation to his mother. That reading again comes from selections from a homily on the holy and glorious dormition and transformation of Our Lady, Mary, Mother of God, and Ever-Virgin, by St. John Damascene. I read this particular particular translation out of the Popular Patristics series from St. Vladimir's Press. If you want to find this and a number of other sermons uh, that are all centered around the uh, the patristic, the early patristic homilies on the Dormition of Mary. The Marian doctrines are often uh, quite challenging for people who grew up in the Protestant Church and are are coming into uh, into ancient faiths, and specifically in the Catholic tradition and the Latin tradition, because uh, we the, the doctrine, the the dogma of the Assumption of Mary, was not. Um, codified until quite late, right? We didn't have that in, I think it's 1950, that that we had the uh, the papal document that came down and established it as a dogma. 
but here we see, and, and I, this is always quite helpful for me, here we see these ancient writings uh, from St. John Damascene, and there are others in this same uh, resource that are going back to the 6th and 7th centuries that are enumerating this long-held belief. And so it gives us um, some surety that we are believing within the tradition of the church as we celebrate this amazing feast. I encourage you, don't forget, go to Mass on the 15th and spend some time meditating on the Assumption and the Dermission of Mary. That's all the time we have for today. Today's show is brought to you by Susan Wise and all of those who support the show through Patreon. Go over to Outside the Walls, click that Patreon link to learn more. Until next week, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Peace.